0: Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased to have with us Professor Sarah Stockwell. Professor Stockwell is Professor of Imperial and Commonwealth History at King's College London. Today we are speaking about her newest book, The British End of the British Empire. Welcome, Professor Stockwell.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Professor, what is the thesis of your book?
1: Um, well, perhaps I could just begin by saying what the book is about and what it does. Um, so the book uh, it it adopts a novel approach to British decolonisation um, by focusing not on the state and imperial policy making, or on uh, the individual and society. Um, the two uh, themes around which I think most accounts of decolonisation have been constructed. Um, Instead, my focus is on uh, the end of empire from the perspective of a set of domestic institutions that lay on the borders of the state, but which have become in various ways stakeholders in Britain's empire. And what the book argues is that during decolonisation, these institutions uh, reconfigured their activities to a Um, adopt new roles, uh, for example, by using their accumulated expertise to become involved in processes of post-colonial state building. And as they did this, they aimed to promote British models and practices and to maintain their own influence. Um, So in effect, these institutions were exercising uh, an imperialism of their own. Um, and I suggest that whilst the institutions experienced some uncertainty and dislocation around the end of empire, that this was in other ways productive uh, for the institutions, giving rise to um, new initiatives and in some cases generating new opportunities for them. And in this way, I argue that although the, uh, their initiatives were sometimes of mixed success, um, that the institutions' activities nevertheless contributed to the persistence um, in an otherwise globalizing world of um, British uh, connections. Now, I wouldn't want to make exaggerated claims for the strength of these connections, um, but we need to take account of them, I think, if we're to arrive at a full understanding of the uh, texture and breadth of um, British links to the post-colonial
0: world. And uh, which particular sets of institutions does the book uh, discuss?
1: Okay, so I focus on four institutions. um, The Bank of England, the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, the Royal Mint, and the Universities of Oxford and Cambridge. The last were, of course, uh, two separate institutions rather than one. And in the case of Oxford and Cambridge, I focus on um, one part of their activities. um, That is their involvement in training entrants for Britain's colonial service. And I chose these sets of institutions um, because I wanted to look at um, institutions whose activities related to uh, different sectors, to public administration, to finance and to defence. And in so doing, bring together in one um, book, discussion of British involvement in post-colonial institution building um, in uh, three key sectors um, that in many scholarly accounts are are discussed separately.
0: Would it be correct to say that the book's emphasis uh, on the British Empire is primarily uh, in sub-Saharan Africa and that other areas of the empire, or for that matter the Commonwealth are not, extensively examined?
1: Um, yes, uh, the circumstances and some of the institutional issues um, were different in India, as was obviously the chronology of decolonization. Um, and in this book, I'm principally concerned with what we might think of as a second phase of British decolonization, that which commences in the Late um, 1950s and continues through in the, the 1960s. Um, and although I discussed this second phase of decolonisation principally with reference to British Africa, many of the things I consider some of the initiatives um, developed by different institutions uh, do nonetheless apply equally to colonies in other regions like the Caribbean, although generally not to um, South Asia.
0: You seem to argue at length that the British were singularly um, at fault in failing to prepare its uh, colonies in sub-Saharan Africa for independence. Is is it uh, not the case that um, in some fashion uh, you seem to be arguing that the retreat from empire from 1957 to 1964, in its rapidity, was something of an error in retrospect?
1: Okay, so I I very definitely do argue that the British failed to prepare their colonies for um, independence. Very little was done um, by way of, for example, education until um, too late. Um, But I wouldn't uh, argue that, therefore, the retreat from empire between 1957 and 64 was um, a mistake. One reason that the British, like other European colonial powers, did so little to prepare the colonies was because they assumed that independence was a long way off and would occur at a more leisurely pace than turned out to be the case. But there were other factors as well which held back processes of of state building. Um, For example, a reluctance to promote non-whites to positions of authority in the public services and armed forces in the colonies and this reluctance would have applied whenever the transition to independence occurred. And it was only the prospect of imminent independence that pushed the British into action, especially in the settler colonies in East and Central and Southern um, Africa.
0: What do you mean when you refer to the, quote, Janus faced British state, unquote, as per decolonization?
1: OK, um, post-war British decolonization uh, was more protracted than that of uh, other European powers. You know, it began um, in 1947 in South Asia. Um, it continued through the 1950s and 60s, and then into the 1970s and 80s, before culminating in the handover of Hong Kong to China in 1997. Um, and even today, there are still a handful of British overseas territories, uh, former colonies which um, over which Britain still exercises uh, sovereignty. Um, and as a result, in the 1950s and 60s, while one part of the British state was concerned with dealing with the still continuing empire, those places that remained under British control, another was adjusting to a post-colonial world and managing Britain's relations with its former colonies. So um, some of the architecture of the old imperial state was repurposed to deliver aid to newly independent Commonwealth countries while also still catering to Britain's remaining dependencies. And I um, conceptualise this as the Janus-faced imperial state, drawing on the Roman god um, Janus, who looks simultaneously to the past and to the future, because um, I think that captures uh, the position that the British were in in the 1950s and early um, 1960s. Perhaps I could give you um, one example, Um, and that is the Oxbridge Colonial Service training course. In the late 50s um, and very early 1960s, um, Oxford and Cambridge began admitting students from newly independent um, and decolonising countries um, to these courses to assist with the training of a local um, uh, class of civil servants. Um, But remarkably, Uh, these um, students from independent uh, African states and and other former colonies um, were uh, sitting alongside Britons who were um, still doing the year long training course in preparation for a career um, in the colonial service, um, creating a very uh, anomalous uh, and, as I say, in many ways, remarkable um, situation.
0: Would it be correct to say that, concretely, Oxbridge uh, got out of the Devonshire uh, courses for um, training of colonial uh, servants, civil servants um, primarily money, or, or, I suppose, grants through the um, uh, committee which uh, dispersed such things, the university grants committee?
1: I think... Um In an earlier period, so the interwar years, the the training courses um, developed in the interwar period and were then um, beefed up for the uh, uh, late 1940s. I think in the the 1930s and the 1940s, um, there was some uh, sort of prestige attached to this role um, and it thought appropriate for Oxford and Cambridge to be participating in the training of a class of um, administrators um, who were going out to fulfil a particular role in the empire. Um, But they did also get money for um, delivering the colonial service courses. And this became particularly important to them in the post-war era. Um, There was an expansion in the training uh, colonial service training at that point. And um, this uh, enabled the universities to make new appointments in areas like imperial history um, or anthropology. Um, and at the end of empire, those who were involved in the delivery of these courses, um, and more particularly those who were in posts that were funded as a result of the money they received from the British imperial state, naturally Um, sought to protect their own jobs and their own specialisms, arguing for the continuation of the training courses. And so as a result, and really quite extraordinarily in many ways, um, the courses continued, albeit in a a revised form, even after the colonial office ceased to recruit expatriates on pensionable terms for the colonial service. So by the mid-1960s, what had been Um, courses for entrance to uh, the colonial service, um, had been uh, rebranded as development courses, catering almost exclusively to students from Britain's former colonies. Um, They were then funded by the Ministry of Overseas Development as part of the package of Britain's technical assistance to new states. Um, Oxford's course finally ceases in 1969, um, although Oxford at that point uh, retained a role in training foreign diplomats, uh, which was an activity that had developed alongside um, some of the training of uh, uh, entrance to public administration in new states. Um, But Cambridge uh, the Cambridge course um, only ceased in 1981, albeit that it had gone through various uh, iterations. By that point, um, it's in 19 it's at that stage that the British government withdrew its its funding. But legacies of both courses still exist today at Oxford and Cambridge.
0: Would it be correct to say that overall, the Devonshire courses uh, did not impact or did not impact greatly the uh, two universities as a whole?
1: I think that by the 1950s and 60s, the role is relatively marginal um, to the two universities. But um, the involvement in teaching, uh, not just entrance to the colonial service, but um, uh, entrance to um, other imperial services, um, I think has uh a not insignificant impact on the two universities, and the admission of overseas students um, in larger numbers, uh, particularly um, at the end of empire, contributes to uh, both you know the internationalization at both at both institutions so yes and no, I think
0: at uh, one point in the book uh you argue or at least appear to argue that uh Gallagher and Robinson's theory of the informal empire was influenced by, quote, the experience of teaching African and other non-Europeans at Oxbridge, unquote. Surely this is a little bit um, far-fetched in, in the speculative terms.
1: Um, I, <clears throat> when you say I appear to argue, I suggest it might have been, but I can't say so conclusively, both were involved in teaching uh, the um, students on these the the colonial service probationers on um, the training courses at Oxford and Cambridge. Um, Both were teaching in uh, imperial history. um, And both were there at sort of key uh, transformational moment in the 1950s. Um, For example, Jack Gallagher Um, towards the end of uh, I think it's I can't remember the exact date, but sometime towards the end of the 1950s introduces a a course on um, nationalism in um, former colonies. Um, And behind um, much of what the British state did, and what British institutions were doing at the end of empire was a desire to maintain influence Um, to replace rule with influence, if if you like. And Gallagher and Robinson were both actively contributing to that in their um, involvement or through their involvement in these courses and uh, the training of um, students coming from former colonies to Oxbridge to study. And it seems to me that they would have learned something from what the events that they were witnessing around them. And the 1953 article that they wrote on informal empire, um, it's about the 19th century. um, But nonetheless, uh, one could draw parallels with the um, period of post-war decolonization. And indeed, Many years after he co-wrote the article in 1953 with Jack Gallagher, um, Ronald Robinson wrote a, a second um, influential article with the American historian um, Roger Lewis. Um, and that article is uh, called "The Imperialism of Decolonization." Um, and the title was designed to um, echo the 1953 article he had written with Jack Gallagher. um, And that article was about um, the uh, continuation of empire in new forms um, after post-war decolonization.
0: Uh, To go on to our next institution, uh, what was the Bank of England's initial view of colonial central banks and why did that view change in the course of uh, your examination in the book?
1: Okay, so um, the Bank of England was initially very hostile uh, towards the um, prospect that the colonies would establish their own central banks and issue their own currencies. Um, it was hostile partly because it saw these developments as contrary to the interests of sterling and the City of London, Um And the bank's officials also had a very conservative approach and thought that the colonies lacked the conditions that were necessary for the successful development of independent central banks. And they did everything they could to resist um, the uh, process of financial devolution um, in the colonies. But once it became clear, and this is around the mid-1950s, that the bank couldn't stop this trend, um, the bank's officials decided it was better to assist the colonies so that they could exercise some control over the process. Um, and in that way, prevent the colonies seeking assistance from other countries and organisations like the World Bank, whose approach was uh, somewhat different to um, the Bank of England. Um, and the bank, I think, also recognised that if the colonies were to acquire their own central banks and currencies, It was important to the political and economic stability of the Commonwealth and the Stirling area that these new institutions were as sound as possible. So for multiple reasons, the bank wanted to exert as much influence as it possibly could, and this brought about the change in its approach.
0: Why did not the Bank of England, the UK, establish a currency board akin to what France had uh, until very recently in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, something which um, appears to have given France a considerable amount of influence in its uh, those particular foreign former colonies which were part of the scheme.
1: Okay, so the French uh, approach was different to the British. Um, former French colonies um, were uh, members of the Frank zone, but also... Um, received a currency that was issued or coins and notes that were issued by um, regional central banks that were established at um, independence. Um, In the British case, I don't think that former British colonies would have um, accepted that situation. They were keen to attain their own national institutions which they saw as emblematic of independent statehood. Um, This was the source of pressure on the Bank of England in the first instance to go along with the development of of central banks. Um, So I think uh, politically um, it would have been impossible for the Bank of England to impose uh, an alternative um, set of, of arrangements. Um, but it's important to remember that at independence former British colonies did remain as members of the sterling area. Um, and that meant that they continued to peg their currencies to sterling and to maintain their reserves in, in sterling. So in the British case, there also continued to be very strong financial links between Britain and its former colonies, and indeed it was to preserve um, and protect the interests of the sterling area. Um, that the Bank of England was uh, very keen. Um, this was why the Bank of England was very keen to exercise control over the process of creating new central banks and issuing currencies.
0: Did the Bank of England, insofar as it, it is possible to ascertain, see itself as pursuing specific British interest, or did it more operate in uh, such fashion that it was more autonomous Operating as more as an autonomous operator.
1: Okay. Um, so the Bank of England um, had been nationalized by the post-war Labour government in 1946. So it was technically um, part of the uh, the British state, um, but it still retained considerable autonomy. Um, and the initiatives that it developed in relation to the colonial empire were Uh, done so really with very little reference to um, the British government. Um, For example, one of the things I discuss is a training course that the Bank of England started in 1957 um, and which they continued to offer thereafter every two years uh, to um, bankers from Commonwealth Central Banks. And they developed that really um, quite independently of the... Um, Of uh, the the British Treasury. Um, What were they doing in doing this? Well, partly they were um, promoting national interests um, because uh, defending the position of sterling as an international currency and promoting the sterling area, um, they would deem that in British national interests as well as in the Bank of England's interests. But I would argue that they also acted in their own um, interests, insofar as they hoped to establish uh, through their activities a network of central bankers within the Commonwealth. Um, and they wanted um, Commonwealth central banks to be as independent as possible of their governments. Um, they thought that was important. Uh, for um, the stability of of, uh, currencies in um, independent states. But they also wanted there to be this class of um, central bankers who would liaise and collaborate um, and meet independently of governments. And I'd say that's their agenda um, rather than, uh, in this instance, um, also promoting something they perceive within national interests.
0: So it's not the case that the Treasury, um, say Sir Edward Bridges or Sir Norman Brook, was giving directions to the Bank of England in, in uh, this particular area?
1: No, not at all.
0: Um, how Our next institution, which is the Royal Mint, how dependent was the Royal Mint on sub-Saharan Africa uh, for orders circa the mid-1950s?
1: The mint was um, primarily a domestic institution. Its purpose is to produce uh, coin um, for domestic use. But in the course of the 19th century, it had started producing um, overseas uh, coinages. And by the Second World War, um, the production of some overseas coinages had become important to the mint's overall function. Um, for example, in years when it didn't um, need to produce much coin for uh, domestic use, um, it, could, um, it, it was able to uh, keep plant going and stuff busy by producing these overseas uh, coinages. Um, and in the 1940s, after the Second World War, um, it received a sort of high volume of orders from um, former for, for, sorry from Britain's colonies particularly in Africa, um, and was making a profit from them. Um, And these colonial customers were, in effect, tied customers because um, the orders were placed uh, by British officers um, and the colonies really had no choice in where they went to obtain this coin. Um, So it had become important to the um, business model for the Mint
0: Would it be correct to say that the decline of empire uh, had little effect on the Royal Mint's business model and success?
1: Um, Initially, the Mint was very uh, concerned that as the colonies um, sought to uh, issue their own currencies, that they might purchase the coin um, from other um, exporting mints. Um, including some within the uh, the British Empire, and that they would lose the business of these customers. Um, but they succeeded, in fact, in securing the orders for um, coin for uh, really all, almost all um, British uh, colonies. Um, I'm trying to think of a case where they didn't in um, the late 1950s and the early 1960s, and I, I can't. Um, And in fact, as a result, they were um, not only able to retain their existing old colonial business, um, but expand it. Um, And we have the very uh, sort of ironic situation in some ways that it was a British institution that produced and in some cases designed the coins and even independence medals um, that were issued by new states to signal their independence, to commemorate their independence from from Britain. Um, And for the Mint, I argue that the business of ending empire proved very profitable.
0: Uh, Our next institution, the final one, which is Sandhurst, Uh, would it be correct to say that uh, while Sandhurst remained or became very popular with both sub-Saharan African and other former British colonies uh, throughout the world, as a practical matter, the tangible benefits of such Popularity was very limited, nothing or very little by way of, say, military to military influence or, for that matter, arms sales, except for perhaps the Persian Gulf.
1: So, Sandhurst, the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, um, is different to the other institutions that I study in the book insofar as it hadn't chosen its role at the end of empire, um, the training of overseas cadets. Instead, Um, that role was sort of forced on it um, by uh, various government departments, the Foreign Office, the Colonial Office, the Commonwealth Relations Office, um, who all for different reasons sought, well, related reasons, but um, aiming at different uh, cohorts, sought to use the academy as an instrument of of British um, soft power. Um, And... That was of considerable consequence for Sandhurst because uh, by the late 1950s, about one-sixth of all cadets were from overseas, leading to some tensions within um, the academy. Um, your, question, your question about uh, the impact on transfer of military technology. Could you just repeat the question for me, please? I'm not sure uh, I caught the
0: whole question there. Sorry, in terms of the aspect of tangible benefits, uh, coming from this um, soft power, in particular things like, say, military-to-military influence or arms sales?
1: Mm. Um, it's very different, difficult to measure uh, what impact um, the Sandhurst effect had. It's not something that I primarily set out to do in my book. I was describing the effect on Sandhurst rather than on um, armies overseas. But nonetheless, um, the uh, British authorities, both at Sandhurst and in the army more generally, um, believed that it was useful to have a diaspora of Sandhurst alumni in the armies of new Commonwealth states. Um, They thought that it might not so much actually perpetuate British models because it became clear quite quickly that that wasn't necessarily the case as um, the militaries became uh, politicised and you get the pattern of um, post-colonial coups, um, but rather that it gave them a connection to the military in um, Commonwealth uh, countries. And indeed, sort of rather cynically, the British authorities witnessing The trend um, towards uh, military coups in former um, British colonies in Africa believed that um, the influence of the military in in politics in post-colonial Africa made it all the more important that the British had connections to the military um, through, uh, for example, the training at at Sandhurst. But they also hoped and indeed believed there was evidence that receiving a British army training where cadets might use British military hardware um, might encourage a pattern of. um, uh, Purchase of British um, arms. Um, And there is some evidence of a correlation between uh, the pattern of British um military um exports and um uh training at, at sandhurst but but it's it's circumstantial and it is difficult um to reach uh, firm conclusions about what you phrase as the tangible benefits that came from using sandhurst as this instrument of soft power.
0: Now aside from the uh influx As you say, at at one point, one-sixth of all cadets were from uh, um, former British colonies. Um, Was there any other institutional changes at Sandhurst as a result of this particular uh, influx?
1: Um, The authorities at Sandhurst, as I said, become worried about race relations at different points. But in other respects, they make very few changes initially to cater to this influx of overseas cadets, Um, not least because the whole purpose of their admission, the admission of these overseas cadets to Sandhurst was to sort of spread British influence and to expose them to British practice. Um, But in the 1970s, uh, they they make more concessions to the presence of these overseas cadets, um, adapting some of the sort of social and cultural uh, aspects of life at Sandhurst to to their presence. Um, But there are some curious consequences that result from this uh, influx of overseas um, cadets from the the, the 1950s. Um, For example, some of those teaching at Sandhurst, and I'm thinking here of individuals who were on the academic staff rather than um, soldiers, Um, some of the academics become interested in uh, researching um, aspects of um, colonial military history. Um, There's one man who taught at Sandhurst um, um, after the Second World War uh, who became involved in recording songs that African soldiers would sing to him. Um, and creating a, a record of, of those. So uh, in possibly unexpected ways, you see some um, legacies there. And of course, Sandhurst continues to this day to admit very large numbers of overseas cadets. In the later 20th century, and the early 21st century, those have tended to be drawn from um, Gulf states rather than from uh, the Commonwealth but you can see a sort of continuous process of um, admission of overseas cadets from the 1940s to the present day.
0: Uh, Compared to the French, British involvement appears, at any rate, uh, in terms of sub-Saharan Africa, uh, with the end of empire to have been rather limited. Was that an outcome that the UK wanted? or the UK did not want, but could not do anything about?
1: Mm, That's a good question. Um, I think it's fair to say, as you do, that the British did intervene less in the affairs of former British colonies in sub-Saharan Africa than the French did. Um, But we need, of course, to remember that the British Empire was larger and more geographically far-flung than the French, And as a result, in the um, period after decolonisation, British post-colonial aid has been dispersed amongst a correspondingly larger set of recipients and across um, uh, more regions. Um, But even though British uh, involvement um, and intervention, for example, in military intervention, for instance, is less significant than the French, British involvement in post-colonial Africa Africa has nevertheless been extensive. Um, Britain was keen that the colonies should look to Britain for assistance um, rather than to some other uh, donor countries, um, particularly Russia. And obviously, this is a reflection of the the Cold War context of of the time. But it's also fair to say that while some former African colonies were important to Britain strategically or economically, uh, for example, Nigeria or or Kenya, um, other African states were of uh, much more marginal importance. And yet Britain found it difficult to extricate itself from the provision of substantial technical assistance to them. And there are points um, beginning in the mid-1960s Um, and at different instances thereafter, where British officials complain that the pattern of British overseas aid didn't necessarily correspond to the pattern of British overseas interests, um, and they would like to see more aid directed away from Africa and towards other uh, regions of the world.
0: Uh, Would it be correct to say that the uh book's overall emphasis is... um, Uh, at variance with Bernard Porter's argument that the empire had little domestic effect on the UK?
1: Yes, I think it would be. Um, I mean, I argue that institutions that were primarily domestic were nevertheless shaped to various degrees by empire. And more especially, I argue that developments in the mid-20th century on the eve of or during decolonization reinforced and in some ways intensified the institution's engagement with um, Africa in in particular. And crucially, what I hope uh, the book does is show that this British involvement didn't cease um, at the end of empire. Instead, um, because really a process of state building um, starts with sort of flag independence, i.e. that is um, because the colonies enter independence um, so ill-prepared, there's an extended period of state building thereafter. Um, And because the British and British institutions and the British state are involved in that um, by offering a variety of forms of of technical assistance, um, this ensures that not only the end of empire uh that not only the end of empire left many legacies in britain itself um but that there are numerous ongoing connections between um institutions in and individuals in britain and its its former colonies so to give you one illustration um or two illustrations um the, at the end of empire there are many more overseas students enrolled on courses in britain than there'd been previously and very large number of them come from Commonwealth countries. Um, But the end of empire also saw many thousands of Britons still employed in the public services of former colonies, especially in uh, Africa. Indeed, in one case, Zambia, um, a few years after independence, there were even more Britons employed in the public services of um, the country than there had been in the Uh, colonial era. Um, So um, not only do I uh, I start from the position really that, yes, empire did have an impact on the UK, but we need um, to uh, also um, take account of the very extensive engagement of Britain, um, Britons and British institutions Um, in the Commonwealth after the end of empire.
0: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be?
1: I think uh, really sort of following on from the um, the point I've just made that um, independence is the starting point of a process of state building um, and a point, uh, and that there is this ongoing, extensive British involvement at the end of empire. Um, so the end of empire isn't the end. Um, it's uh, the beginning of a new phase of British involvement. Um, and um, secondly, that the uh, process of decolonisation um, in Britain and its impact in Britain. Um, I don't think end of empire is traumatic, um, at least for the institutions I've looked at and the individuals in them, in the way that some people have argued, although uh, political developments around the end of empire um, brought uncertainty uh, for many people, in some cases, loss of career, um etc. Um, but rather that uh, Britons um, and those working in these institutions um, sort of pragmatically got on with adjusting um, to the changing situation, um, adapting their activities to ensure uh, that um, the organisations in which they worked had an ongoing role. Um, and above all uh, that they um, both believe that Britain should and could uh, exercise significant influence at the end of empire in the affairs of former colonies.
0: With that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Stockwell, for being so kind to speak with us today. This is Charles Coutillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Stockwell.
1: Thank you for um, talking to me about my book.